Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 40 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2012 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article this month examines the incidents and predictors of psychiatric inpatient suicide within a national cohort in Denmark. This study by Madsen and colleagues, sponsored by the Danish government, was the first national cohort study of psychiatric inpatient suicide. Their objectives were to use register data to, one, examine frequency of inpatient suicide, two, examine sociodemographic characteristics, past suicide attempts, and clinical care as predictors of inpatient suicide, and three, analyze change in the inpatient suicide rate across 10 years from 1997 through 2006. They followed all psychiatric hospital admissions in Denmark during these years from date of patient admission until patient discharge or inpatient suicide. By using survival analysis techniques, their study was the first to take inpatient time at risk into account. The risk of inpatient suicide was high. 860 suicides per 100,000 inpatient years. Of those who completed suicide, half died within 18 days of admission. The suicide rate significantly decreased over the 10-year period at about 6% each year. Several important predictors were found. Patients with a bachelor's degree had a significantly higher risk compared to those with primary school education or vocational training. A secondary diagnosis of personality disorder raised the risk of suicide, as did having recent contact with a private psychologist. The highest risk, though, was for those with a recent suicide attempt before admission to the hospital. This group had a five-fold risk of inpatient suicide. The authors suggest that attention should be given to these risk factors, especially those that are the reverse of risk factors in the general population. They also emphasize the importance of screening patients for suicidal predisposition in the early days following admission when risk of inpatient suicide is highest. Next, we have a report from the Mexican Adolescent Mental Health Survey. Specific phobia is one of the most common disorders among adolescents, but it is also one of the least studied. A group from Mexico City looked at data from the Mexican Adolescent Mental Health Survey to find out the prevalence, comorbidity, and characteristics of specific phobia in this age group. Three-fourths of the sample reported at least one fear, the fear of blood, injections or injuries, and the fear of various kinds of animals were the most common types of phobias. In fact, multiple fear types were the rule rather than the exception, but few of the youths reported severe impairment and even fewer had received treatment. As would be expected, severity of impairment and comorbid disorders promoted treatment-seeking. 
Specific phobia is highly comorbid with other anxiety disorders and eating disorders. Also, specific phobia does not spontaneously go away during adolescence, given that 75% of those with a lifetime diagnosis continue to have a 12-month diagnosis. The authors emphasize that it will be crucial to find the appropriate threshold of diagnostic criteria in order to distinguish between developmentally normative fears and psychopathology, and they note that the dsm 4 may not be accomplishing this. The next article examines the relationship of serotonin-related gene and COMT gene polymorphisms with criminal behavior and schizophrenia. The authors of the study assessed serotonin-related gene and COMT gene polymorphisms in 100 schizophrenia patients who had committed homicidal or violent acts. This group was compared with a group of healthy subjects. The genotype frequencies of TPH1 and COMT were compared between groups. The results showed that the TPH1CC homozygote group had significantly higher frequencies of crime-related schizophrenia and homicidal schizophrenia than the A-carrier group, regardless of sex and age. However, the results showed no significant differences in the frequencies of genotype of COMT polymorphism between criminal patients with schizophrenia and healthy subjects, nor were there any significant differences found between non-homicidal patients with schizophrenia and healthy subjects. The author's findings suggest that TPH1CC homozygote is likely to be a genetic risk factor for criminal behavior, especially homicidal behavior, in patients with schizophrenia. However, COMT gene polymorphisms were not associated with criminal behavior in patients with schizophrenia. Next, we turn to our CME article of the month, which gives the results of a search for effective and efficient personality disorder screening tools. Dr. Germans and colleagues, in their quest to find the most effective screening tools for predicting personality disorders, Examine the characteristics, validity, post-test probabilities, and screening capabilities of eight different instruments. These screening instruments were examined in three prospective, observational, test development studies in three random samples of Dutch psychiatric outpatients using the Structured Clinical Interview for dsm 4 Access to Disorders as the gold standard. Among the eight assessment instruments, the self-report form of the Standardized Assessment of Personality Abbreviated Scale, the Self-Report Iowa Personality Disorder Screen, and the Quick Personality Assessment Schedule had the best sensitivity and specificity and correctly classified the largest number of patients. Using these three scales raised the odds from 50% to between 80% and 84% that a patient in psychiatric outpatient population will correctly receive a personality disorder diagnosis. To receive CME credit for this article, visit psychiatrist.com to read the full article and take the post-test. Our next article examines trends in the clinical process in psychiatry. 
Anticipation of the advent of DSM-5 and ICD-11 has generated much discussion recently. But Dr. Favre and colleagues remind us that scales alone, even improved ones, provide limited value for diagnosing patients. Current formal strategies of assessment fail to capture many factors psychiatrists often weigh in clinical practice, such as progression of disease, the patient's social support, and the patient's response to previous treatment. In this article, the authors examine some emerging trends and perspectives in the clinical process in psychiatry, with special reference to clinometrics a domain concerned with the measurement of clinical phenomena that do not find room in customary taxonomy. Several innovative assessment strategies are identified. One, the use of diagnostic transfer stations with repeated assessments instead of diagnostic endpoints. Two, subtyping versus integration of different diagnostic categories. Three, staging methods, and four, broadening of clinical information through macroanalysis and microanalysis. The authors conclude that current assessment strategies in psychiatric research do not reflect the sophisticated thinking that underlies clinical decisions in practice. The clinometric perspective provides an intellectual home for the reproduction and standardization of these clinical intuitions. It allows the clinician to make full use of the clinical information that is available. It opens a new, exciting area of research that is likely to yield improved targets for neurobiological studies and treatment trials. Our next study focused on early response and early remission as predictors of outcome in depression after one year of follow-up. A group of Spanish researchers followed 930 patients with dsm 4 major depressive disorder for 12 months. They used early response by six weeks as the primary efficacy measure and early remission by six weeks as the secondary efficacy measure. They wanted to analyze whether these two factors, as well as others, were associated with a good outcome at 12 months. Among the total sample, 38% showed early response and 21% showed early remission. Logistic regression analysis showed that factors associated with a good outcome at 12 months included early response being employed and the absence of physical comorbidities. Early remission was also strongly associated with good outcome. The researchers concluded that either response or remission achieved by week six is the strongest prognostic factor for a good 12-month outcome of an episode of MDD. This study was funded by Eli Lilly, Spain. In our next article, we learn about managing ADHD throughout the lifespan. Children, adolescents, and adults with ADHD often struggle to deal with the negative impact their symptoms have in many facets of their lives, including school, work, and relationships. For many young adults, coping mechanisms to overcome the impact of ADHD are developed over many years. But these coping skills can become overwhelmed by the increasing work and social demands of adult life and responsibilities. It is often at these times that patients seek out help and treatment. The ADHD 
Life Transitions Model aims to raise awareness and acceptance of the lifelong nature of ADHD by the broader clinical community, as well as the patients who suffer from this disorder. This model shows how each developmental phase raises increasing responsibilities and burdens for individuals with ADHD and for those around them. Clinicians need to be aware of appropriate and effective means to identify the changing impact of ADHD at different life phases and to treat ADHD symptoms for those who have continuing impairments. Counseling on how to cope with the symptoms and their impact can then be provided. Research and clinical initiatives in these areas will lead to developing consensus on how to best manage ADHD through developmental phases. This clinical perspective will ultimately benefit children, adolescents, and adults with ADHD, as well as their families, friends, co-workers, and employers, because ADHD identification and treatment will be viewed within a specific developmental phase. We move next to an article on the proposed deletion of five personality disorders from the DSM-5. A high rate of comorbidity among personality disorders has been identified as a problem. The DSM-5 Work Group on Personality and Personality Disorders therefore recommended reducing the number of personality disorder diagnoses from 10 to 5 by eliminating paranoid schizoid, histrionic, narcissistic, and dependent personality disorders. As part of the Rhode Island Methods to Improve Diagnostic Assessment and Services Project, Mark Zimmerman and colleagues looked at the effect of eliminating these five disorders on the prevalence of personality disorders, the comorbidity among the disorders, and the association with psychosocial morbidity. Over 2,100 psychiatric patients presenting to the Rhode Island Hospital outpatient practice were evaluated for DSM-4 disorders and psychosocial morbidity. More than one quarter were diagnosed with one of the 10 DSM-4 personality disorders. When five personality disorders were excluded from consideration, 26% of the sample was diagnosed with at least one of the five personality disorders proposed for retention in the DSM-5, and the comorbidity rate dropped from 30% to 21%. Compared to patients without a personality disorder, those with a retained or excluded disorder had greater psychosocial morbidity. However, there was little difference in psychosocial morbidity between patients with a retained versus excluded personality disorder. The authors believe that deleting five personality disorders from DSM-5 would reduce comorbidity among the personality disorders, but comorbidity would not be eliminated. Reducing comorbidity, however, could come with a cost of false negative diagnoses. Zimmerman and colleagues conclude that their results do not provide unambiguous support for the proposed elimination of five personality disorders. The next article looks at the bereavement exclusion in diagnosis of depression. 
The DSM-4 criteria for major depressive episode exclude episodes that are due to bereavement unless they are prolonged or complicated. Depression in the context of bereavement often remits. Yet evidence from clinical trials demonstrate the effectiveness of psychiatric care for bereaved individuals who would otherwise qualify for a depression diagnosis. The authors, therefore, sought to determine whether the bereavement exclusion is valid. They analyzed NISARG data, focusing on individuals with depression that occurred following loss of a loved one, and in particular, focusing on those who did not qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis and those that did because their depression was identified as complicated. Individuals with bereavement-related depression, as opposed to non-bereavement-related, scored lower on many external indicators of psychopathology. For example, they had lower levels of pre-existing psychiatric disorders, had fewer depressive episodes, had less impairment, and were less likely to seek treatment. They were also at a lower risk for new psychiatric disorders during the study's three-year follow-up period. Unexpectedly, this same pattern of differences was observed for individuals whose depression was diagnosed as complicated. Thus, depressive episodes following bereavement are often less indicative of psychopathology than depression unrelated to bereavement. The authors concluded that there is no support for the dsm 4 exception to the bereavement exclusion. That is, the exception that bereavement-related depression qualifies for a diagnosis because it is complicated. They suggest either strengthening the criteria for the exception or abandoning the exception-exclusion framework altogether. We move next to an article on prevention of weight gain with the use of olanzapine. The problem of weight gain in patients taking olanzapine has been commonly reported. Studies have shown that the use of olanzapine resulted in weight gain of at least 7% in over 60% of subjects. While current researches help clinicians predict which patients are more likely to experience significant weight gain, clinicians also need information to help them prevent or mitigate weight gain in their patients. The authors have contributed to this need by conducting a 22-week open-label study to determine whether weight gain during olanzapine treatment can be prevented with adjunctive treatment algorithms that include amantadine, metformin, and zonisamide. Outpatients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder were randomly assigned to three groups. One group received only olanzapine. The second group received olanzapine plus amantadine with possible switches to metformin and then zonisamide. The third group received olanzapine plus metformin with possible switches to amantadine and then zonisamide. All patients received brief weight management education at baseline. Study results showed that mean weight gain during olanzapine treatment alone did not differ significantly from pooled results for each of the other two groups. However, 
the group assigned to metformin with possible progression to amantadine and then zonisamide experienced significantly less mean weight gain than the group taking olanzapine only. The progression of some patients through the algorithm indicated that a single therapy solution may not be adequate for every patient. Next, we hear about the epidemiology of major depression with atypical features. In the study of depressive disorders, few questions have generated more controversy than the validity of atypical depression as an independent nosologic entity. Despite decades of research, debate continues regarding its clinical presentation, associated characteristics, and prognostic value. As preparations for DSM-5 are in the works, depressive disorders and their subtypes are being re-examined. The authors of this article present data on the epidemiology of major depression with atypical features in a nationally representative sample. Their study was funded by the National Institute of Health, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. The authors used NISARC data to examine prevalence, correlates, comorbidity, and treatment-seeking among individuals with a lifetime major depressive episode with and without atypical features. The results distinguish subjects with versus without atypical features. Individuals with atypical features exhibited higher rates of psychiatric comorbidity, greater symptom severity and disability, and higher rates of treatment-seeking than did subjects without atypical features. The authors conclude that major depressive episode with atypical features may be, in fact, more common, severe, and impairing than major depressive episode without atypical features. Given the prevalence of depression with atypical features and the high risk of suicide and disability that accompany it, early detection, targeted interventions, and development of more effective treatments are important. The next study, the first in our focus this month on women's mental health, explored sertraline add-on to psychodynamic psychotherapy for postpartum depression. As many as 15% of postpartum women experience clinically significant mood symptoms of depression and anxiety during the postpartum period. Untreated postpartum depression causes significant emotional distress, as well as negative effects on the child's well-being and development. Nevertheless, only a few clinical studies have systematically assessed the effectiveness of various pharmacologic and psychological interventions for this disorder. Dr. Block and colleagues conducted a randomized, placebo-controlled study of sertraline add-on to psychodynamic psychotherapy in 44 women with first-episode mild-to-moderate postpartum depression. Patients were given 50 milligrams of sertraline or placebo daily concurrently with 12 weeks of focused, brief, dynamic psychotherapy. While both treatment groups improved significantly, the results did not demonstrate a significant benefit of sertraline over placebo as add-on to psychotherapy for treatment of mild to moderate postpartum depression. 
Because of the small sample size, the results cannot be viewed as definitive, and a much larger study is needed to confirm these results. Furthermore, the promising potential of focused brief dynamic psychotherapy as an intervention in this population should be studied under controlled conditions. This study was supported by the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, now known as the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Next, we are reminded of the importance of precise diagnosis of bipolar disorder in pregnant women or those planning pregnancy. There have been few analyses of characteristics of young women with questionable diagnoses of bipolar disorder according to research diagnostic criteria. Therefore, the authors decided to compare characteristics among women in their reproductive years who had a prior clinical diagnosis of bipolar disorder and to compare characteristics of those with confirmed versus unconfirmed and presumably misdiagnosed bipolar disorder. The sample included women who were either pregnant or planning to conceive and who had presented to a perinatal psychiatric clinic. To confirm or refute their previous diagnoses of bipolar disorder, two independent diagnostic assessments were completed, the SCID interview and an evaluation by a perinatal mood disorder expert who was masked to the SCID findings. 71% of participants had confirmed bipolar disorder based on concordant assessments, and nearly 12% were considered misdiagnosed. The rest had discordant assessments and were excluded from further analysis. Confirmed bipolar disorder was associated with a history of antidepressant-associated mania or hypomania, psychotic symptoms, and sustained euthymia during mood stabilizer treatment. Presumably, misdiagnosed bipolar disorder was associated with childhood physical abuse and comorbid obsessive-compulsive disorder. These clinical factors found to distinguish confirmed versus misdiagnosed bipolar disorder may help refine clinical diagnosis, which is crucial to this population since women with bipolar disorder are at a high risk for postpartum relapse. This study was supported by the National Institutes of Health and private funding. The next and final offering in our focus on women's mental health explores the impact of maternal anxiety and depression on fetal drug exposures. Managing maternal mental illness during pregnancy presents special challenges. Clinicians must follow a measured approach to maximize relative safety for both mother and fetus by weighing the reproductive risks of available treatments against the risks of untreated illness. The authors note that prior to this study, systematic investigation of how prenatal psychiatric symptoms impact prenatal drug exposure had been limited. Therefore, they set out to prospectively examine the association between severity of maternal depression and anxiety during pregnancy and the maternal use of medicinal agents and habit-forming substances. Their NIH-funded study of nearly 200 participants found that both maternal depression and anxiety were associated with decreased prenatal vitamin compliance and increased use of hypnotics and tobacco.
However, only depression was associated with exposure to a broader array of medications targeting the physical symptoms that often accompany depression. The authors conclude that although pregnant women with mental illness are frequently encouraged to discontinue psychotropic therapy, a potential unintended consequence is increased fetal exposure to other agents. Their findings confirm and extend previous studies, underscoring the importance of addressing prenatal depression and anxiety. Next, we have a freestanding online-only commentary by Dr. Leon, in which he discusses the role of data and safety monitoring boards in psychiatric intervention research. I direct you to psychiatrist.com to access it. A Data and Safety Monitoring Board, or DSMB, is a multidisciplinary group of scientists that monitors randomized clinical trials. Although DSMBs have been used for clinical trials in cardiology, oncology, and infectious diseases for decades, it was not until the late 1990s that the National Institute of Mental Health initially required DSMBs for some of its larger trials. The NIMH mandate expanded through the following decade, requiring DSMBs for many clinical trials in psychiatry. In turn, the need for board members has grown quickly. In his highly informative commentary, which received funding in part from NIMH, Dr. Leon considers the purpose of a DSMB and thoroughly describes its roles, responsibilities, composition, and implementation. We finish our summaries of peer-reviewed articles from the February Journal with three online-only articles that can be accessed at psychiatrist.com. The first looks at the stressor criterion for post-traumatic stress disorder. Roberts and colleagues examined the expanding definition of traumatic event, the required stressor component for diagnosing DSM post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The DSM-4 has a much broader definition than the third edition. The author's research is of particular relevance as further revision of this component is being considered for the DSM-5. The authors analyzed data for over 3,000 women with PTSD from the Nurses' Health Study 2 cohort to find whether the definition of traumatic event matters for PTSD phenomenology, treatment-seeking, and physical and mental health consequences. Participants with PTSD following DSM-3 defined events reported on average one more symptom and were more likely to have symptoms lasting one year or longer. Importantly, the authors found that the type of stressor that triggered symptoms did not predict the nature of symptoms or the physical or mental health consequences. Even non-DSM-defined events produced PTSD as consequential as that following DSM-3 events, suggesting that PTSD may be an aberrantly severe but nonspecific stress response syndrome. The results suggest that the stressor criterion could be expanded in DSM-5 without much consequence for our understanding of PTSD phenomenology. Also, the authors note that 
since patients who have experienced non-DSM events may meet all other criteria for PTSD, individuals experiencing PTSD from events like financial crisis or divorce might benefit from trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapies. Our next online-only article examines the risk factors for antidepressant-related switch to mania. Treatment of bipolar depression with antidepressants is a controversial issue. Uncertainties exist regarding the efficacy and safety of these drugs in bipolar depression as they have the potential to induce manic symptoms. To learn more about these concerns, the authors analyze the factors involved with switch into mania, hypomania, or mixed states in a cohort of over 200 depressed bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 patients who were treated with antidepressants in addition to previously prescribed mood stabilizers and or atypical antipsychotics. Study results show that treatment-emergent effective switch was detected in almost one quarter of patients. This group had earlier age at onset, younger age at first antidepressant treatment, previous multiple episodes, higher number of relapses, lower rate of response to antidepressants, higher number and rate of previous switches into mania or hypomania, and had no history of psychosis. However, a greater number of previous antidepressant exposures was not associated with occurrence of antidepressant-related switch. The authors conclude that switch risk can be high in clinical practice, even in patients who take anti-manic medication concomitantly with antidepressants, and that an illness course characterized by earlier age at onset, multiple episodes, and worse outcome is highly predictive of antidepressant-related switch. Our final online-only article this month looks at the influence of pharmaceutical industry sponsorship on research trial drug dosing and outcomes. We are increasingly aware that the way research trials are designed can have an important effect on their outcome. One issue that has not been well explored for psychiatry trials overall and for depression trials in particular is medication dosing, or rather, differences in relative dosing between comparator drugs. There have been many studies showing that pharmaceutical industry sponsorship can influence research trial results. The authors of this meta-analysis sought to learn whether industry sponsorship has an impact on dosing in research trials. They analyzed 58 randomized controlled trials of antidepressants involving 15,000 patients. These studies were published from 1996 to 2010. The authors found that sponsor medications were dosed higher in their dose ranges than non-sponsored drugs more than one-third of the time. Importantly, trials in which the sponsored drug was dosed higher also tended to have results favoring the sponsored drug versus the non-sponsored drug. The authors encourage their fellow professionals to be aware of large dosing discrepancies in research trials in order to know that when a trial shows one antidepressant to be as good as or better than another, it's because it's actually true, not because it's an artifact of dosing. 
And now in closing, I point you to the case report we're highlighting this month of a 25-year-old woman with bilateral temporomandibular joint dislocation associated with antipsychotic-induced acute dystonia. Although this side effect of antipsychotics is rare, it is indeed serious enough for clinicians to be aware of and to remember it. Also, be sure to check out our regular features, such as letters and book reviews, and the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.